Hallelujah, Lord, we worship you because of who you are. Lord, we thank you today that you are Jehovah Jireh, that you are that great provider. Lord God, we thank you that you're the Prince of Peace, Lord God, that when things seem chaotic around us, Lord, you bring us a supernatural peace. Lord, we thank you today that you're a good father who desires to speak to your children. And so as we approach your word today, we pray that you'd give us expectation, Lord God, that, Lord, that we would open our hearts and our minds to receive, Lord God, exactly what you would speak through your word. Lord God, that we None of us want to walk out of here the same way we came in. And so we pray that you would do something in this time together in your word that would change us, that would mark us for eternity. We give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 Praise God. You may be seated. Can we thank this worship team for leading us today? Amen. Praise God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to, to see all of you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness in giving to missions each month. I, I hope when Mission Sunday comes around on the second Sunday, you're not like, oh man, I gotta give again. But you see it as an opportunity, amen, uh, to partner with what God is doing around the globe. I had the privilege this week of traveling down to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Many of you know we are a non-denominational church, but we are a part of a fellowship of churches called the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies. And so I've been asked to join the executive board. I was going down there to spend three days in board meetings. That sounds real exciting, doesn't it? But I gotta tell you, I've come back so encouraged of what God is doing in our fellowship. Hundreds of churches in the United States as well as Canada, some internationally as well. And God is moving uh, through our churches. When many churches are closing their doors, uh, our churches are growing. We're seeing tremendous growth in the number of churches. We were in Fort Worth actually to, to visit with and encourage uh, a new church plant there. It's, it's only a couple years old, but think about that. While some churches are closing their doors, uh, planting more churches through the fellowship, and it's our desire to do even more because we truly believe that in the day and age that we live in, what our, our nation needs right now, what our world needs right now is spirit-filled churches that stand on the word of God. Tragically, there's not enough of them, but I'll, I'll tell you this, those churches that are standing strong on the word of God are the churches that are growing right now. Many of them are exploding, and so be encouraged, amen, that, that God is at work, and uh, there's so much more ahead of us. I want to encourage you, as you communicate with our missionaries and pray for our missionaries, pray for our church planters. Uh, Justin and Kim Allison are the lead pastors of Revive Church right there in Fort Worth. Pray for them, lift them up, that, that God would continue to grow that church and, and use it. You might say, well, aren't there enough churches in, in Dallas? No, there's not enough churches because not everyone's going to church yet, right? And until that's the case, then at that point, there'll be enough churches. But they're, they're reaching others for Christ. They're in a new area reaching people for Christ. And so pray for them, amen? Well, we're gonna jump back into the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, uh, pull it out. If you got a note sheet on the way through the door, grab that. If you, if, if you need a pen, again, just look for the woman in your row with the biggest purse. She's got biggest purse. She's got a couple. Just make sure you return it at the end, okay? Listen, I pray as we're walking through uh, the book of Romans that God has given you a greater appreciation for what is known as the great Christian manifesto. Um, but I feel like before we move forward today, we need to do a little bit of review. We need to remind you exactly where we are in Paul's letter. If you remember week one, I pointed out some words that are repeated in the book of Romans that you should know. And write these down. If you've got your note sheet, if you don't, jot them down. A couple words that, that you need to know. One of those words is the word law. Law. 
We're going to see that in our text today. It's, it's a word that's repeated 78 times in the book of Romans. And the word doesn't just refer to the law of Moses, as we uh, might think. It's actually uh, a principle at work here. Maybe you remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, Paul writes that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's Paul speaking about there? He's speaking about the principle of life and the principle of faith versus the principle of death. But again, 78 times the word law is used. And then there's the word righteousness. Righteousness, it appears in our text as well today. It's seen 66 times in Paul's letter. And finally, the word faith, it appears 62 times. And, and so again, if you look at these key words, you can understand the theme of the book of Romans. We take those words and we put them together, we know that Romans teaches us how we are made righteous before God by the law of faith. It gives us the principle or the law of faith. Paul is teaching us how we are made right before God, how we are given a righteousness by our faith. And so really two of the great summary verses of Romans chapter one, uh, verse 16 and 17, I hope you know these, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, when you understand the theme of the book of Romans, you will understand why a, a study of the book of Romans can be found in every major revival in church history. Just think about that for a moment. Every revival in church history, you will find that the leaders at that time were transformed by the book of Romans and by their understanding of justification by faith. Now, I shared at the very beginning a brief outline of the book of Romans. I want to take you back there so you see where we're at. We're making progress, all right? But four parts to the book of Romans, easy to remember. They are, number one, the wrath of God. Secondly, the grace of God. Third is the plan of God. And finally, the will of God. The wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. That's the entire book. And so chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, you'll remember we talked a lot about the wrath of God and how it really paints a, a backdrop, if you will, for the beautiful message of the grace of God that we see in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way into chapter 8. And that whole section talks about God's grace. But the section that we're in right now, really chapters 9, 10, and 11, is all about the plan of God for both the Jew and the Gentile. Because when Paul declares that we are made righteous by our faith, he knew this, that it's going to raise a lot of objections and it's going to raise a lot of questions. Like if that's how we're made righteous, then what about those who follow the law, especially what about the Jewish people, right? What about the Jewish nation? Does God have a plan for Israel? That's the section we're in right now, chapters 9, 10, and 11. What a fitting time to be in these chapters, right? And then we get to, to chapter 12, to the end of the book. That'll probably take us into the new year. But it's going to be all about the will of God in the life of a believer. And so let's look together at chapter 10. Uh, Pastor Sal preached on the first part of this chapter uh, three weeks ago. And so we're going to review some of the beginning of the chapter. And then we're going to move into the end of that, that chapter. But Romans chapter 10, a couple of verses I want to highlight. Verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's he talking about? Talking about his Jewish brothers, right? Is that they might be saved. He's writing about the Jewish people. He says, my heart's cry, my desire is that they would be saved. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, the word zeal in the Greek, 
is the word zalo, zalo, not jalo, zalo, okay? You're going to remember it though now. It means an excitement of the mind or a fervor of the spirit. This is uh, certainly a characteristic that marked the apostle Paul's life uh, before he was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Paul at that time was known as Saul of Tarsus, and he was a very zealous Jewish man. He was so zealous that he thought, man, I'm going to take these Christians and I'm going to find them and I'm going to throw them in prison. He was so zealous that he stood by as they stoned Stephen in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes about this idea of zeal for God and enthusiasm for God. And he says, but it's not according to knowledge. In other words, it's not based on a correct understanding of scripture. You know, I believe that zeal is a good thing. I believe that, that we as the people of God should be zealous about the things of God. But I also know this, that zeal is a very dangerous thing if it's not accompanied by knowledge. Our universities today are full of zealous young people, passionate young people. The problem is many of them are zealous, but not according to knowledge. Much of, of what is fought for on a college campus is, is not based on truth. And so you can be zealous and at the same time ignorant. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in his time, to the religious Pharisees. Listen to what he said, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. He said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Think about that. He's saying to the most religious people in that time, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And hear me, my prayer is that the exact opposite would be said of us, that we as a church would be known as those who know the scripture and we know the power of God, amen? That was weak, amen? Okay, and so Paul says they have a zeal for God, but again, it's not according to knowledge. And here's how it plays out, look at verse three. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Well, let me tell you first of all what it's not. The righteousness of God is not something you earn. The righteousness of God is not something you earn, rather it's something you receive. Maybe we get a little more light in the house. So those of you that have paper Bibles in the back, you can read them a little bit more light and you can write these down. It is not something you earn, it's something you receive. But Paul says his fellow Jews are ignorant of that fact. Like they, they don't get it that righteousness is something you receive. That a right standing before God is something that is done for you. It's not done by you, okay? And because of this, they seek to establish their own righteousness. There is a phrase for those who try to make themselves righteous. It's called self-righteous. You see, the self-righteous, both in Jewish circles back then, but also in Christian circles today, are those who think that they can produce righteousness by themselves. They, they think it comes by earning it, working at it. And so, oh, I go here and I don't go there and I do these things and I don't do those things and therefore I am righteous. But when you think you are producing righteousness in your life, you are by definition self-righteous. You are a self-righteous individual. But here's the challenge that the, the Jews in the first century faced. As they're presented with the gospel, as they're presented with this message of justification by faith, there's now this thinking, well, what do we do with this whole system of works, right? Like we have this whole religious system. Are, are we just gonna cast that aside? Uh, again, it's not just the, the Jewish people. I know many Christians today, many so-called Christians who've grown up in a system of works, <laughs> 
And they're confronted by the idea of salvation by faith alone, and, and something in them pushes back against that idea. Because in order to truly receive Christ's righteousness by faith, I need to set aside the idea that I can save myself. I need to set aside the thinking that my good works earn me God's favor. You see, in Judaism, they had the law. They had, again, this whole system of works. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments, many laws, hundreds of laws that you would keep. At the same time, if they were honest with themselves, they knew they couldn't fully keep the law. And so what was the provision for where they fell short in the law? What was the provision? Animal sacrifice, thank you. The sacrifice was the provision, right? So we're gonna try to obey the law, but we know we're gonna fall short, and because we're gonna fall short, there needs to be a sacrifice. The animal was sacrificed because you would always fall short of keeping the law perfectly, and yet they would go through their prayers, pray three times a day, they would tithe, they would fast, and because they did all of these things, they would brag about it or at least think, well, I have a right standing with God. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like Jesus very much because he would not acknowledge their system of righteousness by works. They didn't like him because to a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery, he said, I don't condemn you. He says, go and sin no more, right? Of course they thought, who is he that he would do that, right? And that's why Paul says here in verse four of chapter 10, very important verse, he says this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you are not going to be made right before God by keeping a bunch of laws. Christ is the end of that. But just think about how well this went over with the Jewish people, especially those who consider themselves to already be righteous. You know, there's a saying among the Jews in that time that if only two people were to go to heaven, out of anybody that ever lived, if only two people would go to heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee because certainly they were the ones who would have made themselves righteous. But then Jesus comes along and he says to the crowd, Matthew chapter five, verse 20, he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of who? The scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You begin to see why the religious hated Jesus. He, he said, even the most self-righteous among you is not getting into heaven. And they're like, wait, hold on, right? Because they're used to earning their righteousness. But hear me today, we could never earn our righteousness. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to produce in you what you could never produce on your own. He came to provide for you what you could never provide for yourself. And so this is a very important statement. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because everyone who does not believe in Christ is going to continue to try to justify themselves through the law, and in trying, they will fail. And so in verse 8, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. He says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. He makes it clear that this is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is, what's the word? Justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The belief in the heart that justifies the confession of the mouth that saves. So right here, Paul's laying out very clearly, these are the elements for salvation. First of all, you believe. You believe in your heart. He's not talking here about an organ that, that pumps blood, okay? No, he's saying you believe at the very core of who you are. In other words, it's gotta be real and it's gotta be authentic. 
You're not just acknowledging that God exists, you are agreeing with Jesus. The word here, confess, is the Greek word homo logeo, right? The word homo means same, logeo means word. It literally means to say the same thing. You understand, that's what confession is. You are agreeing with Christ. You're saying the same thing. You are agreeing with what he says. You have the conviction that Jesus is who he said he is. He is God in the flesh. He came and he conquered death and he conquered the grave through his resurrection. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. I put the quote in your notes. I I love this. He says this, we believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught, but we must go a step further and trust him. It is not even enough to believe in him as being the son of God and the anointed of the Lord, but we must believe on him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is a savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, lying with all your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believe that he can save you. Believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of salvation with him in unquestioning confidence. I love this. He says, depend upon him without fear as to your present and eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. That's the gospel message right there, right? The heart of the gospel message is if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Again, for with the heart one believes and is justified. That's how righteousness comes. It comes by faith. And because of that, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. And so if you remember over the last few chapters, Paul has been saying that salvation is by faith, but it's also, understand this, it is a sovereign act of God. God in his sovereignty, he elects or chooses those who will be saved. That's the idea of predestination. And I said about a month ago, yes, God is sovereign, but at the same time, you and I are responsible. How are we responsible? Well, right here, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there is a response to the work of God in our lives, right? And who are those who will call upon the name of the Lord? It is those that the Holy Spirit first draws to himself. Scripture makes it clear that before we came to Christ, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. And here's what I know, a dead man can do nothing, right? But the Holy Spirit can can do a a deep work within our hearts whereby we are born again and you and I would come to this place of confession, of agreeing with what Jesus says. And so then we get to verse 14. Verse 14, bunch of questions there, right? He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him from whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What a verse for Mission Sunday, right? How are they to believe unless they are sent? We talked about this idea a little while back of the external call of the preaching of the gospel and also the internal call or the internal work of the Holy Spirit, right? And so Paul tells us that the external call is important, right? He believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it needs to be proclaimed. He's given his life to this. He has lived in constant danger for this one purpose, that the gospel would be proclaimed. And so he knows very clearly his calling is to proclaim Christ. He is an apostle, which simply means a sent one, right? He's simply following the command of Jesus, who told his disciples before Pentecost that they were to go to the uttermost parts of the earth as a witness of what Christ has done. And can I just say, while Paul is an apostle, he is a sent one, today each and every one of us are sent. We are all called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, 
Like whatever your occupation is, you need to live it out as a witness of Jesus Christ. You need to live it out as a witness of Jesus Christ, and you need to take every opportunity to share the good news of what Jesus has done. In fact, I think you should be praying for those opportunities and looking for those opportunities and saying, Holy Spirit, give me the boldness to speak. Amen? And so Paul is sent by God. He's sent by the elders of the church in Antioch. Remember Acts chapter 13? And God still calls and God still sends men and women to proclaim the good news that many would hear and many would believe. And then Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 52 to talk about those who are sent. It's amazing because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul quotes Isaiah more than any other New Testament writer quotes Isaiah. But but look at how he describes those who are sent. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Turn to your neighbor and say, nice feet. Understand, you didn't have to look at their feet to say that, okay? But you do need to look at their lifestyle. Because if they're preaching the good news, scripture says they have beautiful feet. Some of you are like, can we stop talking about feet? But what do the feet speak of? They really speak of activity, right? They speak of motion. They speak of progress. And and can I just say this? All who are moving in the preaching of the gospel, they have beautiful feet because those feet are being used for God's purposes. Now, when Isaiah originally wrote this passage, he was predicting the deliverance of God's people from Assyria and, and from Babylon. But Paul is taking this verse, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's got the right to do that. He takes it and he applies it to deliverance from the bondage of sin. You see, the Jews of that time saw this as referring to the Messiah, or at the very least, the forerunner of the Messiah. But Paul says, no, this is talking about the apostles that share the good news of what Messiah has done. And what's so amazing is that this prophecy in Isaiah, it goes on to speak of redemption. It talks about the ends of the earth seeing the salvation of God. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate on that in our text today, But I'm certain of this, that the Jewish readers that would read that would know the context and they would know this, that Paul's message is that salvation is going to go to the nations. If you look at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it's the beginning of one of what is known as the suffering servant songs. It's one of several songs in Isaiah that refer to the Messiah and and to the suffering that he would have to endure. And so there in verse 16, Paul writes this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He's quoting Isaiah 53.1, and he's really connecting these two passages by referring to the Messiah as the arm of the Lord. And what he's saying is that although God has revealed himself to the Jews, they have not believed his messengers. Because at this point, only a remnant has received the gospel. Only a remnant of Jews has come out of self-righteousness and legalistic religion to find freedom in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is that, that great chapter that talks about Jesus bearing our transgression, talks about him becoming our guilt offering. Of course, Paul's pointing to these passages because uh, they are two clear passages in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering of Christ and also the victory that he gives to us. And so, Follow Paul's train of thought here, right? At the beginning of the chapter, he's crying out for the salvation of his people. He's already shown us that that only a remnant would be saved. Yes, the good news goes to both Jews and Gentiles, but only a few will believe. It is only those, hear me, it is only those who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. 
If it's only those who call on the name of the Lord that will be saved, I think it's important that we know what it means to call on the name of the Lord, right? And simply it means this, that we recognize our inability to be righteous on our own. We call on the name of the Lord because we see our need for a spiritual savior. And the tragedy is that even though Jesus revealed himself to the Jews, even though he showed himself to them, even though he showed the very nature of God, only a few believed the message of the apostles because they were caught in this idea of I can make myself righteous. So how will they come to faith now? How will they call on the name of the Lord? How will this happen? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The message of the gospel is how faith gets transferred to you and I. Because we simply cannot confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can't confess that God the Father raised him from the dead unless we first hear that message, right? But when that message is preached and and the Holy Spirit comes and applies the gift of faith to that message, then we hear and we are delivered by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's a powerful verse. But I got to tell you, so many take it out of context. Many take that verse and they say, well, if you want more faith, then just read the Bible and you'll have more faith. And and while I believe that's true, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is all about salvation. Remember, Paul says that God is the one. He's the one who puts the word in our hearts and in our mouth. He does the work and then we confess or we agree with what the word says and we believe. And so the faith that we need to confess and believe comes by a work of the Holy Spirit, but it also comes by hearing the gospel. And hear me, that's why the external call is so important. That's why on Mission Sunday, we stand with missionaries who are not just doing good works, they're not just doing charitable works. A lot of people are doing good works. But if it's Mission Sunday, we wanna make sure that along with those good works, there is a clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because good works can help for a time, but they have no effect on eternity. It's only the message of the gospel that changes lives for eternity. And so that's why every Mission Sunday we're saying, man, who are those that are out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, when somebody stands up and they they speak truth and someone else hears that truth and the Holy Spirit's working on their hearts, then they can make a decision what they're going to do with that truth. But verse 18, he says this, but I asked, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul is quoting here from Psalm 19, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he cites this passage to make a point. He focuses on the first part of Psalm 19, which tells us that God's glory is seen in the heavens, and because of that, the message goes to everyone on earth. But if you go just a little bit further in that psalm, we see that the word that that transforms our life, a word that transforms our lives becomes the subject. In the last part of that prayer, Psalm 19, verse 14, there is a prayer that both heart and mouth will be conformed to what is acceptable to God. And then the song ends by declaring that God is our redeemer. Really, this is what Paul has been teaching throughout all of chapter 10. And he uses it to prove his point that everyone hears the word of Christ to some extent. Everyone hears the word of Christ to some extent, but if that's true, again, here's the question, well, what's happening to the Jewish people? It's the question that keeps coming to the forefront. I mean, if if, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why aren't more Jews accepting Jesus as Messiah? 
Like if God put it in our heart and he put it in our mouth, if nature is proclaiming who Jesus is and the evangelist, the apostle Paul is going out and he's proclaiming it, then why aren't more Jews believing? And once again, Paul is gonna make his point from Old Testament scripture, verse 19. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Is that the problem? Did they just not understand? He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He's quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, and Paul is explaining that all the way back in the time of Moses, really, if you look at Deuteronomy, it's one long sermon by Moses. Like, if you think I preached long, man, Moses just went on and on and on, right? But Paul says, man, way back then, even then, God was going, made a promise that he was going to take a nation that did not know God, and he was going to use that nation to make Israel jealous because they should have always known God. And they should have always recognized God. Israel should have been in the center of God's blessing through Jesus as their Messiah, but they're not. Why? Because they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here's the reality. When they heard the message, they, they heard it, but they didn't exercise faith. Because they did not trust God's word through the prophets, they, they were not saved. And I want you to see this passage in Deuteronomy in the, the context to give you a, a little more context around it. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Again, these are the words of Moses. He's speaking on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. He says this, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Therefore, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Isn't that amazing? Again, Paul says way back during the time of Moses, God told Israel that he was going to make them jealous by giving his blessing to a nation that never sought his blessing. And when it says nation, it's not talking specifically of a nation like the United States of America. Don't go there, okay? It's not saying, it's talking about a people, right? Who are those people? They are the Gentiles. And just think about it, for thousands of years, the church has been made up primarily of those people. We are those who have found God even though we weren't looking for him, right? We've been called by God even though we were never the people of God at the very beginning. We were no people. We were a foolish nation. And if you look back, look at what verse 20, he goes on to say this. Then Isaiah, Isaiah is so bold that he would say this. I've been found by those who did not seek me. And I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. What is God saying there through, through Paul, through Isaiah, there in verse 20? Ultimately, what he's saying is he is sovereign, that he is Lord, and therefore, he has the highest authority. Understand today, there is no one in authority over God, okay? He is the highest authority. But here's what else you need to know. God is not just sovereign, He's also a father, and he's a good father. He's not just sovereign. He's not just all-powerful. He's a father. And it's really important that you would know both of these things because if God's just sovereign and he's all-powerful, that's really dangerous. <laughs> unless, hear me, unless he's loving and he's good. You see, there are some religions such as Islam that have a view of God as sovereign but not loving. Many Muslims believe that God is in charge, but they don't necessarily believe that he's good. But when I say that God is a father, here's what it means. It means he's for us. As believers, we can know that all of his plans are for our good and, and for his glory. 
And men, I need you to hear this, men, especially on Veterans Day weekend, veterans, those who served in, in the military, I pray you understand this, that any power or leadership that God gives you, he gives you to bless and to serve and to protect others. He doesn't give you power or position to act in a domineering way, but rather to act like a father. And so when we talk about God being sovereign, here's the reality. When someone's sovereign, they have two choices. If I'm sovereign, if I'm all powerful, I can control the outcome of everything or I can let people make their own decisions. You can control the outcome, and that's what Scripture is, is saying here in part of this, right? Look, look at this. To a people who are saying, well, I'm not seeking after God, God's like, okay, well, I'm going after you, <laughs> right? I'm not asking for God, and God's saying, well, I'm going to show myself to you. You can see very clearly this God controlling the outcome of people's destinies. That's where we get the language of predestination. But hear me today. Because God is sovereign, he can also choose not to control the outcome at times. He can choose instead to let people make their own decisions. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, we're told that God handed people over, right? He gives them over to their sin. In other words, he says, you do you, right? You do what you want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go that direction. In essence, he says, I'm going to let you do what you want. And so I want to be very clear today that everyone who goes to hell is ultimately responsible because that's the choice they've made. Everyone who goes to hell is responsible because that's the choice they've made. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But on the other hand, everyone who goes to heaven, hear me, it's only because God made a choice to override their choice. And so what does that mean? Like I said earlier, it means that God is sovereign, but I also believe this, it means that we're responsible. And so there in verse 21, he talks about the nation of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held my hands out to a disobedient and a contrary people. Have you ever tried to hold your hands out for an extended period of time? Do this with me right now, come on. Straight out in front of you, no cheating, no leaning on the person next to you. Come on, straight out in front of you. Some of you are feeling it already, right? Here's the question. How long can you hold them like that? How long can you hold them like that? Some of you are getting tired. Don't quit. I want you to have this picture of God. Don't put them down. God says, I've been doing this for a long time with my people. I've been stretching out my hand again and again. And again, I sent them the prophets. I, I, I sent them my, my messengers. I sent message after message. I sent prophecies of the Messiah. I sent my own son again and again. I stretch out my hands. You can put them down. Try it when you get home. See how long you can go. I want you to have the picture, though. Because God says, I, I stretch out my hand, but I can only do this for so long. And what are the two words that God uses here to describe the people of Israel? What are the two words? Disobedient and contrary. Man, if there's two words that I don't want God used to describe me, those are two words. I don't want to be known as disobedient. I'd rather obey. I don't want to be known as contrary. In other words, going against God. I want to go along with the plan of God, right? And what he's saying is that here they are disobedient in the country. He's saying they're not doing what God told them to do. They're making a choice to rebel and to be defiant. And what he's saying is so very important for us to understand in the day and age we live in because we live in a time of lawlessness. 
And here's the reality. The less law we have, the more we live like hell. And so we need God's law, right? We, we need God's rule. We need God's law to rule over us. I know there are some who would say, well, Pastor, America's not a Christian nation, and so not everybody believes that, and so we shouldn't put that on others. That's not their culture. That's not the way they do things. But I got to be clear today. You are not sovereign, and your culture is not sovereign. And therefore, you need the word of God. And hear me, the the tragedy is, I had a conversation this week with someone that just broke my heart. The conversation is uh, around the the church and what the church is allowing, and the reality is the church is trying to rewrite God's laws. But those laws are for all people in all places at all times. So people are like, why can't we change those laws? Because God got it right the first time. God got it right the first time. And there's those, those that'll say, well, that was thousands of years ago. Well, you know, they still apply today because the human heart hasn't gotten any better. We still need God's law. We still need God's direction. And so the natural question that comes from all of this is, well, if this is what's happening to, to the Jewish people, if God held out his hands for so long and they didn't respond to that, does this mean that God has cast his people away? Has God disowned Israel? That's really the question that's gonna be asked next week when we get into chapter 11. And Paul's gonna use his own life as an example that God has not cast away his people. In essence, Paul's gonna say, well, he didn't cast me away. Come talk to me. I was a rabbi who persecuted the church. I I killed Christians and yet God saved me. I thought I was religiously superior to these Christians and I didn't believe in Jesus, yet now I believe in Jesus and now I follow him with my whole heart. And so he's basically going to say, well, if God cast his people away, then explain me, right? So no, God has not cast away the people or the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. We'll get into that more next week. Again, remember the question is about salvation. And Paul is saying that the Gentiles have now been brought into the faith in order to make Israel jealous. Now, I hope you don't go around telling your Jewish neighbor, I'm a Christian and I make Jews jealous. That's just what I do, right? I make y'all jealous by the way I live my life. I I know you don't do that. But remember, Paul is speaking from a Jewish perspective. And he's saying that when the Jewish people look at you and God is doing a work in your life, God is going to use that to draw them into this place of jealousy. Oh, that your, your neighbors and your coworkers would look at your life and say, hold on a minute, that's, that's our place. That's the blessing we should be living in. That's the glory that we should have in our lives as a nation. And yet these Gentiles, they're now claiming to be the children of God. They have a peace of God and they know the presence of God. I want that, I'm jealous of that. Again, in chapter 11, we don't have time to get into all that today, but he's gonna begin to talk about this idea of how the Gentiles have been grafted in contrary to their nature. But our grafting, and hear me today, the whole process has a purpose beyond our salvation. Do you believe that today? God has saved you for more than you. It's not just a a ticket to heaven. There is a purpose behind your salvation. And God has a purpose for you and I beyond our salvation. You know, it's amazing because from time to time, I'll have conversations with believers who live outside of our area, outside of New York, and Man, they know that the Jewish population is growing in Rock and it's growing in New York. I mean, there are more Jews in New York than there are in Israel. 
and not always, but sometimes there's this sense of, oh man, how, how's the church gonna survive there, right? Like eventually your church is gonna be a synagogue and that's just the way it's going. And I'm like, what kind of defeatist mentality is that? That's not what the word of God tells me. The word of God tells me that he's gonna do something in our lives that would make those who surround us jealous. Because hear me, church, I wholeheartedly believe this, that God has placed us right here, right now, for such a time as this. And I believe that God can work in your life in such a way, that he can bless you in such a way that it's gonna make your Jewish neighbors jealous. (laughs) Well, Florida may have better weather. That's debatable, actually. You either freeze here or you melt there. I'd rather freeze here, right? Florida has, has lower taxes for sure, but God's not called you there. He's called you here for such a time as this. He's called you here for such a time as this. He's placed you here where you're surrounded by, by Jewish neighbors who might look at your life and say, wow, he has something, she has something that even I don't have. You have a peace about you and you speak about a relationship with God, like it's so real. You know what's interesting is this, of course Israel's in the news so much today, we're all praying for and watching what's happening over in the nation of Israel. But even though Israel is, is a fairly secular nation at this point, here's what the Jews in Israel know. They know that their best friends in the whole world, those who are just standing beside them the most right now are evangelical Christians, you know that? Like if you ever go over to Israel, there's this sense that the people there know without a shadow of a doubt that the people that love them the most and love their God are evangelical Christians. Think about that. What a testimony that is, right? God is doing a work in us that has a purpose beyond ourselves. But I want to encourage you today as we close. I want to encourage you, don't make the same mistake that Israel made. Don't come to a place where you think that you have to work to earn your own salvation. Know today that your salvation is a free gift of God. If you've ever met a self-righteous individual, here's the first thing you'll notice. They are pretty miserable (laughs) because they're trying and they're striving and they're falling short. They walk around with a lot of guilt, a a lot of shame. They'll put that guilt and shame on you as well. (laughs) But there's no joy and there's no peace. I guarantee you've never looked at a self-righteous individual and you said, I want what they got. There is no joy. There is no peace. And so I hope you know today that you can never work hard enough to save yourself. You can never be righteous on your own. But if God in his sovereignty has drawn you to himself, if today you have grabbed a hold of the message of faith, then according to Philippians 4, 7, there should be a peace and there should be a joy that comes from your intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so I have to ask you this question today, and it may be a hard one to swallow, but I think you might need to wrestle with it this week. I'm wrestling with it myself. But here's the question. Are you provoking anyone to jealousy by your relationship with God? Are you provoking anyone to jealousy by your relationship with God? Because when it comes down to it, I don't want to be guilty of provoking someone out of arrogance. I don't want to be guilty of provoking someone out of duty, like I just, I got to do this, right? But I really want to provoke others with the love of Christ. Yes, I'm called to speak the truth in love. Yes, I know it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction of sin, but I'm convinced more and more and more that I want my life to be winsome. 
so that I can win some. How about you? Is that your prayer today? Would you stand with me? As we close today, maybe that needs to be your prayer today. Maybe you just need to take a moment and say, God, would you work in my life in such a way Lord, that you would draw me into intimacy with yourself and that it would provoke jealousy in others for what I have with you. Heads bowed around this room. I just want to say this right now. God's hands are held out to you, even right now. What will your response be? Don't let it be disobedience. Instead, say yes. Simple yes. Lord, whatever you would call me to do, yes, I'm going to respond. Don't let your life be described as contrary to the word of God, but rather in line with the word of God. Maybe today, that type of life, that type of intimacy with Jesus begins with a simple yes. If you're here today and you've struggled to make yourself righteous, I want to tell you the word of God makes it clear that is simply by a confession of faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that he makes you righteous. We stand here today not in our own righteousness, but we are clothed, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so even right now, you can make that simple confession of faith that comes from the heart, that you would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you would confess that, that God, has, the Father, has risen him from the dead and that he's alive and work in your life. Maybe that needs to be your prayer right now. But I think for all of us, our prayer needs to be, God, would you work in my life in such a way? (laughs) Or would you bring me to that place of intimacy, of closeness with you? Would you fill my life with a peace and a joy that would make others jealous? Come on, just begin to ask for that today. He desires to, to work that into your life, even right now, if you would ask and receive that by faith. Hallelujah.